Hello, Shirley fans. Thank you so much for coming to listen again. As per usual, we will keep this episode family-friendly, but given that this is Motley Crue, the subject matter may not be suitable for younger listeners, so please bear that in mind. But without further ado, on with the show. Welcome to the Shirley You Can't Be Serious podcast. I am here with my metal-studded leather pants and my mascara and blush on, and Jason is in the spinning drum set above me. Jason, have you got everything? Are you ready to go? Let's go, D. Ready to rock, man. Yeah, I've got my Top Fuel Funny Car. I got my custom-built bike that does 103. I've got a Filipino girl here in a cellophane dress, and most importantly, I've got packages of candy cane. <laughs> Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Surely You Can't Be Serious podcast, discussing and debating the iconic and the forgotten of 80s and 90s pop culture with your co-hosts, James D. Graves and Jason Colvin. All right, here we are for our much-anticipated Motley Crue, Dr. Feelgood versus Skid Row, Skid Row matchup. I am so excited. We're going to be talking about Dr. Feelgood today. I don't know that I've been this excited to talk about a band in all of the episodes that we've done. I'm, I'm just, I'm chomping at the bit. This is such a great band to talk about. There is so much interesting stuff that we could not cover at all in one podcast. Literally, there's three or four podcasts that we could do on Motley Crue. Yes, it is a storied life that they have led, and we fully anticipate that we are going to do several Motley Crue albums over the course of this podcast, so we don't want to spill everything now, but my gosh, there are so many fantastic stories out there. I mean, it's an it's an amazing combination of folks. You have have two guys from the gutters who get together with two guys from the suburbs and they create the most hedonistic kick in the butt awesome mix of music it's incredible it is incredible it's gonna be amazing so hold on to your seats let's get into it motley crew dr Philgood. Okay. So our story begins on December 22nd, 1987. It is the end of a year-long battle with heroin that Nikki Six has gone through, and he is in Hong Kong. He has a flight out at 9 p.m. Doc McGee has a flight out at 6 p.m. Doc McGee makes his flight. Nikki, knowing Doc is gone, deliberately skips his flight. He goes to the interpreter, Lee, and says to her, if Doc finds out what I did, I'm going to have to kill you. And then he laughs. <laughs> <laughs> but she doesn't think it's very funny. So they go out to explore the streets of Hong Kong, um, and he happens to see an old man on the street sitting next to like this steam coming out of the street, and he asks Lee, the interpreter, about it. And she says, oh, it's a fortune teller. And he's like, okay, let's go check it out. And so they walk over there, and... The fortune teller looks at Nikki Six and he says, I don't want to tell his fortune. And Lee tells him. And he says, come on. I mean, it's no big deal. And and pushes his way into to the fortune. And the fortune teller says, okay, give me your hand. Looks at his hand, says something to Lee. And Lee says, he says that if you continue to do the things that you were doing, you will not live to see the end of the year. And Nikki Six says, tell him thank you, because that gives me about a week longer than I thought I had. <laughs> Reminder, this is December 22nd. 
Uh-huh. He flies home, and on December 23rd, as he arrives in L.A., his limo driver shoots him up after picking him up from the airport, and he calls up Slash and says, let's go party. Yep. So Slash, Stephen Adler, Robin Crosby, and Slash's girlfriend, Sally, Sally McLaughlin, all go out, and they go to the cat house. And as they're there living life to the fullest, Slash and Nikki keep going back and forth to the limo to do cocaine, keep coming back in. And finally they just leave and go back to the hotel, leaving Sally behind. <laughs> this is her first night in LA. She's a little bit pissed. She has to walk back to the hotel. Steven Adler's got one room. Slash has got another room. When Nikki and Slash get to the room, he's like, can we get any junk anywhere? And Slash says, I know a buddy who's a dope fiend. We'll get it from him. He brings it over. When Sally walks in, Nikki is obviously messed up and she is obviously pissed at Slash for leaving her behind. So Nikki walks over to Stephen Adler's room and shortly thereafter comes back over to Slash's room looking like a ghost. And as Sally opens the door for him, he falls into the corner of the floor and stops moving and stops breathing. And the drug dealer that they have goes, oh crap, he's dead. And he jumps out the window and runs away. Yeah. Sally is trying her best to wake him up and he's not waking up. Slash, who is drunk and coked out of his mind, starts screaming Todd because he just had a friend a few weeks before who had died of a heroin overdose named Todd. He starts screaming Todd and tearing up the bathroom, breaks the glass door in the shower. Glass shards fall over Sally as she's trying to revive Nikki Six. And she gets up, punches him in the face, and lays him out. <laughs> she continues to try to revive Nikki Six, and he's not coming around. She calls the limo driver and says, I think he's dead. The limo driver calls Vince Neal and says, Nikki's dead. Wow. At this point, Vince Neal, who hated Nikki Six, says, I didn't cry at this time, and I hated Nikki. But when I heard this, I broke down in tears. The ambulance comes. They put a white sheet over him because he is dead. And it's only at the behest of some fans, some young girl fans outside saying, please don't give up on him, that they give it one more try. And he, they get his heart beating again. They take him to the hospital. He's in and out of several operating rooms. They finally have him in one room. His heart is beating and he wakes up. He puts pulls all of the tubes out of him, walks out in the December cold in nothing but a dirty pair of leather pants. The girls who had begged the EMTs are standing outside with a candle lit, hoping that he doesn't die. And so he gets a ride from them back to his house. He goes into his house and he shoots up again. He wakes up with the needle still in his arm, blood in his hand, and he realizes what has happened and he decides, I can't do this anymore. This is what he writes in his journal. Maybe there is a God. Maybe just maybe there is such a lifeline. Something happened last night. I died. Sounds insane, doesn't it? I feel differently today. I think for the first time in my life, I feel hopeful. I can't remember ever feeling happy, but I feel like something has snapped. I feel, I don't know, Last night was not unlike many nights for me, driving toward hell, hoping to be welcomed into death's arms or simply to kill the pain and fill the hole of emptiness inside. 
I saw something. Okay, here we go. I was on the gurney. The sheet was over my head. I saw something. There was my limo. There we were, people crying. There was an ambulance. There was a body with a sheet over it being loaded into an ambulance. And it was me. I saw it all. I was up above it all. I couldn't know this if I was dead. I don't understand it, but something feels different in me. I'm just going to have to write later. I need to collect my thoughts. And he goes and he starts cleaning out all of his drug stuff and the paraphernalia. And he comes across an AA book because he has tried rehab multiple times. And he sees this phrase. Step one, we admitted that we were powerless and that our lives had become unmanageable. He feels more tired than he's ever felt in his life, and he falls asleep for two days. When he wakes up on the 25th, this is his entry. Good morning and Merry Christmas. I decided to put this diary away and start a new one. That's beautiful. Nice. It's incredible. He says he doesn't know how he survived the year of addiction that he had, but he felt on this day that it was a new day. It's awesome. That is awesome. So that's the end of one chapter, which is the beginning of the next chapter, which is the chapter leading into Dr. Feelgood. So this guy, who among other things felt like he needed to do these drugs because all of his heroes did these drugs and they said they wrote their best stuff on drugs. And so what happens when he stops doing the drugs? Does he lose his creativity? No, he writes the biggest selling Motley Crue album of all time. So Nikki started off as a kid with a really crappy childhood. He can remember being a little kid where his mom and her boyfriend go down with him to Texas at about six years old. And he's sitting on the, he's playing with a really crappy Tonka truck on the front porch and his mom and her boyfriend are getting wasted drinking and smoking dope. And at six years old, they invite him in and give him his first hit on the joint and his first drink of whiskey and he says he felt more alive at that moment than he had ever had before suddenly the crazy voices in his head were quiet six years old nice really great really great tommy lived in suburbia had an ozzy and harriet life so did vince neal mick mars who I thought had to be, be at least 20 years older than the rest of the guys, but I think he's only like three or four years old. <laughs> right. he, look, he looks like Joan Jett and Gollum got together and had a baby. <laughs> <laughs> Did you know that Nikki's mom dated Richard Pryor? No, I didn't know that. Yes. No. She was, she was dealing like blackjack at Lake Tahoe or something, and he walked in and their eyes met and it was love at first sight. Like they were in a really serious relationship when Nikki was like six years old, five years old, something like that. Richard Pryor dated Margot Kidder yep. and also dated Nikki Six's mom. Yes. That's incredible. Okay. Keep, yeah. keep going. All right. So Mick Mars, his real name is not Mick Mars. You know what his real name is? Yeah. Bob Allen Deal. <laughs> bad. Bad. <laughs> <laughs> He's been bad since the day he was born. So he, I mean, what a very unfortunate face that that man has. (laughs) But my gosh, when you turn out the lights and he plays the guitar, 
you got to think that he looks like a great god because he is phenomenal. He's a great guitar player. So Nicky bounced between his mom and his grandparents quite a bit. At some point when he was living in Seattle with his mom, made some friends who had a band and he realized that he wanted to be part of the band. And they're like, well, we'll let you play bass if you can get a bass. So he walks into a guitar store with a guitar case in his hand right. and he asks the guy at the counter for an application. And when the guy goes in the back to get the application, Nikki very calmly opens his guitar case, picks up a guitar, sticks it in the guitar case, closes the case, and waits for the guy to come back with the application. Yep. Takes the application, goes back out, is all excited, opens up the guitar case to show his friends who are in the band, and they're like, dude, you got a guitar. We said bass, not a guitar. You're supposed to get a bass. <laughs> He's like, oh, no. So ultimately, he ends up with a bass, but he's terrible at it. <laughs> he's, I mean, it's it's interesting because I remember, you know, watching the videos back in the day, and I can't remember which video it was, but basically he's kind of crawling along toward the camera in this very seductive way. And I'm looking at him and I'm going, he's just a pretty boy in the band. Like this, it's the guitar solo, but they're showing the bass player because the guitarist is 100 years old and frightening. And this right. guy's pretty. But Nikki Six is the architect of Motley Crue. Oh, without a doubt. Without a doubt. When he realized he wanted to be in a band, he had an entire system that he was going to go through to put together the perfect band. He didn't have it perfect the first time that he put a band together. But when he eventually went out to L.A., he started a band, the band that was called London, with Lizzie Gray and a couple other guys. And their singer was a singer who had been in Mott the Hoople, the last singer that Mott the Hoople had before it broke up. Right. And after gigging for a while, the singer was like, I'm not going to be in a band with that guy anymore. He has no idea how to play the bass. Yeah, like Nikki, he he's our he's our guy. He's the one put us together, and he's like, it's either him or me. And they said, we're not kicking Nikki out of the band. And so, <laughs> the singer for the band that was called London, he left. And after he left, of course, the band falls apart. So Nikki's looking for a drummer, and happens to come across Tommy Lee, who's playing for a band called Sweet Nineteen. Sweet Nineteen, and. Tommy had known Vince Neal from high school. They went to high school together. And Vince was kind of in this poppy band called Rock Candy, which played some... It's a cover band, yeah. Yeah, it was a cover band. <clears throat> but Vince knew how to get the bad girls. And uh, Tommy, he introduced Tommy to the bad girls. And so Tommy was like, oh, I like Vince. But whenever Tommy and Nikki got together... They're like, all right, we need a guitarist, and they start looking in, looking in the one ads, in the and they see something that says, Do you know "loud, rude, and aggressive guitar player available." And this came from the Recycler, and right? Yeah, so I I find this super interesting. So they're like, "loud, rude, and aggressive guitar player." That's our guy, right? So they call him up, and they said he shows up, black leather, about five foot two. Tommy said he looked just like Cousin It from the Adams Family. And then when he started to play, they were like, this is the guy. He I don't is. know one thing about this guy, but this is it. Yeah, he is phenomenal. And they thought the fact that he looked like an alien actually would help them out. They thought it made it a little <laughs> bit cooler. So they've got a drummer, and Tommy was an awesome drummer. He was really young. 
he was the youngest of them all and was still in high school when he got together with Nikki. And, but he had been playing drums since he was a little kid and he was phenomenal. He just did it all the time. He put in his 10,000 hours to become an expert. Yep. And so he was a drummer in the marching band in high school. Yeah. He was in the band before he was in a band. <laughs> pretty cool. Yeah. And so, yeah. So they're thinking, okay, we need a singer. Vince is already with a band. And so they're like, well, how do we get Vince to come play with us instead of playing with rock candy? And they offered to pay him 150 bucks a week. <laughs> Here's the deal. Motley Crue was formed on January 17th, 1981. And that's the date that Nikki and Tommy sort of got the nucleus together, right? Vince was hired on April 1st of 81. Once Vince was hired April 1st, the band played its first gig at the Starwood nightclub on April 24th. So they needed a name, right? And so Nikki sat down and, and he says, all right, guys, this is what I'm thinking. I, I'm thinking about calling it Christmas, okay? And he even played with like the spelling, like X-M-A-S-S, -S, like you know, X mus, you know, and they were all like, no, no, terrible, terrible, terrible. So, so, and Mick Mars remembered something from a long time ago when he was with a band called Whitehorse. The guy working the sound booth said, well, this is a motley looking crew. And Mick Mars was like, man, that's a, that's a pretty cool name. And he wrote it down and he kind of played with the spelling of it and he brought it out and he said, guys, I've been waiting for a long time and I think this could be a really cool band name. And when they saw it, they were all like, that looks awesome. And then Vince Neil, who apparently they were drinking a lot of Lowenbrow beer at the time, loved the little two little dots. <laughs> umlauts. The umlauts, yeah. And so that's <laughs> why. Oh, that's fantastic. I did not know that the umlauts came from Lowenbrow beer. You didn't know? Yeah, that's no. it. So Lowenbrow, awesome. we look at their Lowenbrow beer and we're like, yeah, how about a couple of little dots over the O, a couple of little dots over the U? And <laughs> that is how you have Motley Crew. That's fantastic. That's so- great. Yeah, so they start playing, and it so the punk crowd isn't interested in them, but because they've they've adopted this glam style, and this is interesting that they've you know they're 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 looking at Kiss, they're looking at David Bowie, all these guys from the seventies who had done this glam stuff, and they're trying to bring that back, I guess, and so the punk guys hate them. But what they would do, in addition to plastering their posters everywhere on Hollywood Boulevard, is they would go to local high schools or in the suburbs and hand out their posters to the hottest chicks. Because you've, nice. you've got to figure, if the beautiful girls are going, the guys are going to come, right? Oh, smart. It's brilliant marketing. Exactly what happened. So the suburban kids are the ones who were like buying all the tickets to Motley Crue's shows when they were playing at the Whiskey A Go-Go. And of course, at the end, you know, at the end of every show, they would go, all right, everybody come back to our house. You know, <laughs> we're going to keep on partying. And so like, you know, 500 people would show up at this absolute crap hole of an apartment that they had but the door had been kicked in so many times that it was no longer on its hinges it no longer had a lock and one night david lee roth comes over to do some coke with motley crew and somebody tries to come in the door and it falls over on top of <laughs> david lee roth and i just gotta think if i'm sitting here doing drugs with david lee roth and the door falls on top of him i've made it i have arrived <laughs> exactly <laughs> so just to recap, we got the four members of the band and, and 
so I always think it's interesting. These guys have such rock star names, but sometimes it's interesting for us to to look at what they were actually named, right? So you have Vince Neal, who's the lead singer. His name is actually Vincent Neal Wharton, a little less rock star than Vince Neal. Mick Mars, we already yes. talked about. Bob Allen Deal, right? Tommy Lee Bass. Okay. Nikki Six. His real name is Frankie Ferrana, which he got the name Nikki Six from his driver's license. He was looking at the number and he saw just the end of it. It said N6. And they're like, What's your name? He's like, Nikki Six. Yes. And he changed actually, it legally. Yeah, he had it legally changed. And when the guys from the band that he played with in Seattle called him up after a couple of years, he was like, I'm just going to tell you this one time. Yeah, Frank Ferrana is dead. Do not call me that name. I am Nikki Six. I will mention this. The first, on their first album, Too Fast yeah. for Love, there's a song yes. called On With The Show. And the lyrics start off with, Frankie died just the other night. Some say it was suicide, but we know how the story goes. And so it's just kind of an autobiographical song about putting to death who he was. Yeah. So they put on a show. Like, we know that Tommy is awesome. We know that Mick is awesome. We know that Vince has a unique voice. It's probably not a great voice, but it's a unique voice. And we know that Nikki is terrible at the bass, but writes some incredible songs. Right. Right? Yeah, it's and a magic so recipe. Yeah. It, there, they have figured out that it's all about the show that you put on. And so that's why they wore the makeup. That's why they wore the crazy leather clothes that they had. That's why they had the pyrotechnics and the flamethrowers out of the guitar and all the other stuff that they would do. They knew it was all about the show. And so when all these suburban kids started coming to the show, they had a line out the door. Like they were like, they're, they're looking at it and they're like, what the heck is going on? There's a line going all the way into the parking lot and our show is already sold out. What's going on here? This is crazy. And as it happens, Tom Zutat is driving by yes, and he sees this line out the door and he's like, what is going on here? And he sees Motley Crue sold out on the marquee and he's like, I got to check this out. He walks in, he wa watches the show, and he comes backstage and says, I want to sign you guys. Let me sign you to Electric Electra Records. He would probably go on to regret that later on, because at some point while they're touring, um, he has a new girl that he's been dating, and he brings her backstage. And Nikki's like, so... You guys pretty serious? And he's like, well, you know, it's, we've been on a two or three dates. We're just getting to know each other. And Nikki says, you're really hot. And within three minutes is having sex with her. <laughs> <laughs> the mo Sorry, the movie The Dirt shows Vince Neil having sex with her. It's a different girl. Like Tom Zutat got his girl effed by two different members <laughs> of Motley Crue. <laughs> <laughs> the point is don't ever bring your girlfriend around Molly crew. Exactly. Right. Exactly. Right. <laughs> so, if you don't remember Tom Zutat is the guy who also signed guns and roses a few years later. Right. That's it. That's the same guy. Yeah. He actually wanted 
Nikki Six to produce Appetite for Destruction. Did you know that? No, I did not know that. Yes. And wow. Nikki Six, as strung out as he was, realized there's no way he could produce an album. He's like, I would have been able to barely push the play and stop button. There was no way I was going to be able to produce an album. Wow. That's awesome. I did not know that. Tom Zutat realizes that these guys need management. He calls up Doug Thaler, who's been a, a band manager before, who has recently partnered with Doc McGee. They fly out to see him. And they said it was like a three-ring circus. The fans were going friggin' nuts. And they thought, we got to show this in every city and that we can across the country because this is going to be a hit. Yeah, and Nikki and Tommy, they used to talk about how they would, in their apartment, they would practice setting themselves on fire. <laughs> so before Doug Thaler and Doc McGee started managing them, their former manager, the Kaufmans, put together the money to produce their own album on their own label called the Leather Label. This album was... This is Too Fast for Love. Right. And when... Electra Records has at this point moved over to New York City. They've got a new CEO and his name is Bob Krasnow. And when he sees Motley Crue, he's like, we're not putting these guys on Electra Records. I don't know what you guys are thinking. <laughs> and, they're, and they're like, what? And he's like, listen, we got Joni Mitchell. We've got Linda Ronstadt. We have artistes on our record label, but we don't want to sell our albums to people who live in the gutter. So they're at this weird position where they know that they've got a hit on their hands, but the record company's like, we're not going to do anything with it. And so they realize they've got to start with touring. And the first big show that they do, do you know what it is? Huh. Us Festival, 1983. Oh my gosh. Wow. And so the Us Festival that we've mentioned a couple of different times now, we mentioned it with NXS. We mentioned it, obviously, with Van Halen. It opens with Quiet Riot. Second band to play, Motley Crue. They go out there, and they play the worst piece of crap show they've <laughs> ever played in their entire lives. They are missing cues. The bass and the drums aren't syncing up. And at some point... Tommy, you know, after the show, he realizes that there's a television station there filming everything that's going on. And he starts crying and begging Doc McGee. He's like, you got to do something. We can't let anybody see how badly we did tonight. But what Doc McGee and Tom Zutat and Doug Thaler see that the guys don't see is that all 100,000 people that are there are loving it. They don't care that the band can't play for crap. Right. They put on a show, they have the right look, and they know if this is the way the crowd reacts when they play like crap, there's no way that, that we're going to fail. Okay, so this is 1983, and by this time, they're, they've got an album called Shout at the Devil. This ramped up on MTV, and this is where I first heard of them. They're putting out videos like Looks That Kill, and they've got the pentagram, and the makeup and the girls and so i wonder why some people thought they were satanists <laughs> i they were going with the burning pentagram i mean they're pretty bold <laughs> and out front <laughs> right 
And and your song and your song is called Shout at the Devil. Shout at the Devil. Yeah. And Nikki was like, I said shout at the devil, <laughs> not shout with the devil. Right. And every church youth <laughs> pastor said, Oh, okay, no problem. <laughs> <laughs> when they got together to make that album, Tom Warman, it was the producer, and he calls up Doug Thaler after a couple of days and he says, Listen, Nick and Tommy, easy to work with. Neil is paying the and this guy can't play the bass. And Doug, <laughs> and Doug Thaler goes, no shit. <laughs> We've known that he can't play the bass. It doesn't matter. Just record the music. And yeah, Shout of the Devil makes them mega hits. It's really interesting. I, I mean, I know we've talked about it, but the fact that Nikki can't play and yet still is the most important member of the band he is the cornerstone of the band. If he Absolutely. Is removed, he writes all the songs. Crew. Yes. Yeah. Every hit ever made by Motley Crue was written by Nikki Six. He is a great songwriter, a great performer, and a terrible musician. Or at least he was in the early 80s. Right. He probably learned a thing or two in the last 40 years. I think you're right. I think you're right. So the success that they have with the crowd at the us festival leads to them touring with Ozzy Osbourne, where they learn even more about putting on a good show and drinking and drugging and sexing to the max. (laughs) Yes. So between shout at the devil and theater of pain, the band has a major event occur in the history of the band. Yeah. That's right. On December 8th, 1984, Vince Neil was making a liquor run in his car, which was a Pantera. And he had Nicholas, a.k.a. Razzle Dingley from the band Hanoi Rocks in the passenger seat with him. They went to make a run to grab some more beer and was involved in a head-on collision that killed Razzle. And Vince was in serious trouble of doing actual hard jail time for his death. Yeah, um, which I'm, I have in the history that I do, him getting as little time as he did is amazing to me. Oh, it's 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 incredible. He was charged with DUI and vehicular manslaughter, was sentenced to only 30 days in jail. That's crazy. And only served 18 of those days. That's crazy. And then was subsequently sued for $2.5 million dollars. The short jail term was negotiated by his lawyers, which would allow him to go on tour and make this money to pay the estate of Razzle. Right. But I heard Doc McGee talking about this. I thought this was such an interesting story. Doc's talking to the lawyers and talking to Vince. And the lawyer's like, Vince, they really want you to do some hard jail time for this. And Vince's response was, I can't. And they're like, what do you mean you can't? He's like, I got a tour. I can't take time off. And Doc McGee is like, that's when I knew these guys had no idea that there are real life consequences to problems that they're causing around them. Yeah. So this, this moment, Doc McGee also traces back to whenever Nikki's 
heroin addiction began to get truly out of hand. It was He thinks that the notion that suddenly all of this work that he had done, putting this band together, having the success that they had had up until that point could suddenly be taken away without him having any control over it. And it, he, he feels like that is when this his drug addiction really ramped up. And it, it was after this point that, that Vince Neil says, I didn't really feel like I was a member of the band anymore. I felt like I was a, a singer for the band. It was it was an entirely different dynamic after this happened. And he, of course, he had to stay clean while he was on his probation, which with these guys, I mean, that's like trying to jump in the pool without getting wet. <laughs> right. And they were not, I mean, they'd, they'd ask him to pass drugs and drinks and stuff like that. And it was, it was a hard, hard experience. This yeah. is where Vince Neil and Nikki Six really started hating each other. Yeah. All right. So after Shout the Devil, which sometime we've got a podcast about that one. That's that one has tons of great songs on it. But in 1985, they come out with the Theater of Pain album, and they cover the first song out of the gate. They cover the old Brownsville Station song called "Smoking in the Boys' Room." But the song that really, really sort of ramps them up into the next level of rock groups is the second single off Theater of Pain. It's called "Home Sweet Home." Maybe the greatest rock ballad of all time. After Theater of Pain, a couple years later, in 1987, they come out with the Girls, Girls, Girls album. The funny thing is that all these stories sound tremendously sad. Yeah. And and they are pathetic stories. Mm -hmm. But this band was full tilt, out of control, rock and roll fun, right? It wasn't sadness. It was full on, you know the top fuel funny car going 103 miles an hour. Right. Well, and Vince Neil, and pretty much, yeah. Vince Neil's objective in being a part of a band was he got to be with, he got to sleep with a lot of girls. Oh, as many as possible. Yeah. Nikki Six said, girls were my crush. I fell in love with heroin. So in 1987, they come out with the album, Girls, Girls, Girls. Yes. Which I love this album, and I've heard them talk a little bit cr- critically about it, but there's some great songs on this album. Wild Side is great. Girls, Girls, Girls is great. You're All I Need is great. I'm a big fan of this album. But this is when they are full on, out of control. So I, I saw them. is off of probation at this point, and has started drinking and drugging again. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. 100%. I heard him talking about this. Tommy Lee said this happened every single day. He would wake up, pull himself together, drink, drug, girls, showtime, drink, drug, girls. He said it, it got so out of control that Doc McGee would chase him around the hotel. And when he caught him, he would punch his lights out and handcuff him to the bed. And the next day, when they finally get out of bed after doing all this, they would make fun of Vince for taking a shower. <laughs> <laughs> you mentioned Wildside. So here's the story on Wildside. He wakes up from a night of drinking and drugging, and the girl that he's been with that night is putting back on her Catholic school girl uniform, not because it's the sexy thing to wear because of Britney Spears, because that hasn't happened yet. Right, She's right. actually a Catholic school girl. And so he says to her, Hey, is the Lord's Prayer actually, you know, important? 
And she says, yeah, of course it is. And he says, could you get me a copy of it? And she shows him where it is in the Bible. Then he drops her off on his motorcycle at the Catholic school. The nuns are looking at him disapprovingly. And he goes, I can't imagine how much more disapproval they would have on their face if they knew what I was about to do with the Lord's Prayer. And that was the wild side. Now that we're on Girls, 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 I want to mention something that I thought was interesting. And this will come into play when we talk about Dr. Feelgood here in a second. So the band's fourth album, Girls, 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 was released May of 1987. It debuted at number two on the Billboard Top 200, okay? Nikki has come out and publicly talked about how he feels like they were screwed out of a number one record. He feels like the record executives somehow cooked the books to show that Whitney Houston's album sold more copies than theirs did. And I don't know the full story, but he felt screwed over, um, which is why what dr feelgood accomplishes later is so fulfilling right right did you know that nikki six dated lita ford i did know that apparently the first time they met she walks up to him and puts half a quaalude in his mouth and three days later they were living together (laughs) (laughs) the girls involved here let's let's just cover some of these famous women right okay yeah so tommy has been involved with heather locklear yep Pamela Anderson. Yes. Bobby Brown, who you may know from the Cherry Pie video. <laughs> okay. Okay. Tawny Katane. Tawny Katane. Yep. Right? Which became uh, interesting when Whitesnake started touring with them, and she was married to David Coverdale at the time. That is interesting. That was the Girls 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 tour. Yeah. Nikki was involved with Vanity. Yep. Nasty Lita. Girl. Not her. That's just the song they sang. Okay, I'm sorry. But yes, she was also a nasty girl. But okay, go ahead. Yeah, Vanity, the nasty girl, right? Uh, Lita Ford, and then subsequent Playboy Playmates, right? Vince Neil has a list too long to even discuss. Yep. And it's mostly filled with Playmates and porn stars. Right, yeah. Um, when when Nikki was dating Vanity, I mean, it was a, it was a long relationship, but she had been involved with Prince before that. And one time he goes over to her apartment and she's got 24 dozen roses sitting in the corner. And he's like, what's up with the roses? And he goes over (laughs) there and he looks at the card and it says something like, come back to me. I love you. Love Prince. And he was like, if I find that little door, I'm going to kick his (laughs) ass. And then a couple days later, he finds out that Vanity had actually sent the roses to herself just to F with his head. (laughs) And that kind of defined the relationship that they had. It was a constant, let's do a lot of drugs together. Let's scream and fight with each other and let's screw with with each other's heads. Yeah, he. I heard him discuss this. She would yell at him for drinking like a Coca-Cola and then... An hour later, they'd be doing heroin together. So while they're on the Girls, Girls, Girls tour, there Nikki runs into this guy who's um, who says, hey, I don't know if you remember, but you guys were here a couple years ago, and I kicked open the door to get in before everybody else. And like the whole crowd came after me and Nikki's like, I do remember that. And this kid is now performing in the opening band and the band is called VO5. And the kid says, 
I'm going to be a rock star. And it turns out he was right because just a few months earlier, he had joined a little band called Skid Row and he's finishing up the VO5 concert sets that they had, which is why they were opening for Motley Crue. And within the next two years, he would have that rock star stardom. Okay, so on the Girls, Girls, Girls tour, the drinking and drugging and partying was... Through the roof. Next level rock star stuff, right? Yep. They did not have any consequences. They were completely out of control. And when they saw Vince kill a guy and have no consequences, that just meant it was full speed ahead for everyone. Right. So, but at that point, Doug Thayer and Doc McGee pulled an intervention and said, guys, listen, we are not going to Europe. If we go to Europe, somebody's coming back in a body bag and we are not going to be present for that. Mm -hmm. So they shut down the European leg of the tour. Right. And just said, that's it. Well, you guys need to go to rehab and get your act together. Right. And so that's what they did. They got, they went to rehab, all four of them. Got their, you know, got their act together yep. so that they could be completely sober for their next album. Yep. So during the Girls, Girls, Girls tour, Aerosmith leaves a note on their jet, like a ticket, like you get a parking ticket. They leave the note in the window of the jet for Motley <laughs> Crue that says, if you don't ease up, you're going to crash and burn just like we did back in the 70s. Yep. Now, here's something interesting that you may not know. Dude looks like a lady was written about was written about Vince Neil. I this is the craziest story. Okay, tell me this story. No, that's that's all I got. Okay. You got more go for it. Okay, so I heard this story. I think it's hilarious. Okay, yeah. They go into a bar. Steve Tyler Steven Tyler looks over across the room and notices a full blonde mane of hair and says, whoa, look at that. And when he goes over, <laughs> when he goes over to talk to this wonderful, you know, wonderful looking woman. He is shocked to find that it's Vince Neil. <laughs> and so, his band and Molly crew proceed to beat him to death with that. And that gave birth to the song. Dude looks like a lady. Fantastic. Fantastic. <laughs> Rock and roll history right there. And dire Straits' song money for nothing is about Motley crew. Is it? Yeah. I did not know that. That is good. Look at that. He's got his own jet airplane. That is a millionaire. <laughs> yeah. There you go. Okay, so I thought this was interesting. As they're prepping for their fifth studio album, yeah. they drop the producer of their previous three albums. Warman. Tom Warman. Tom Warman, yep. And they pick up this guy named Bob Rock. Up to this point, he had produced an album called Kingdom Come, and he had done um, Sonic Temple by The Cult. Okay. Uh, and so he's kind of a, a rising star. And so they pick him up. And he, he works with them, does Dr. Feelgood. But then he goes on to do the Black Album by Metallica, mm -hmm. Keep the Faith by Bon Jovi. Yep. And um, I think he even does Britney Spears later on, Michael Buble. He, he, you mean he a, does her album? <laughs> <laughs> Excuse me. And, and does his album as long as we're talking about Michael Buble being there. <laughs> he does their albums. Let me correct that. 
(laughs) (laughs) So Bob Rock is a climbing star. And in fact, it's so Lars Ulrich, after hearing Dr. Feelgood says, I want that producer for our next album, which is funny because Metallica is known to have hated Motley Crue. So they hire Bob Rock and they pick up and they all move to Vancouver to record Dr. Feelgood for nearly a year. I think getting out of LA, they're newly sober and they can go in sort of this college slash summer camp type of atmosphere Mm -hmm. where all they do is get up, go to the studio and work. I think that was key to the success of the album. I got something that's going to blow your mind. Yeah, tell me. Okay, this is my little nugget. Okay. So they dropped Tom Warman, and they're going to go with Bob Rock. But before they hired Bob Rock, they thought about having Quincy Jones produce their album. Wow. How about that? That would have been an interesting... Yeah. Their formula, which is make stuff that has their signature on it, but things that are hooky. They're all about hooky melodies. I mean, you've, they're fantastic at it. Right. They've got the, they've got the look and the attitude and the right guitars and drums for a killer metal band, but they have almost a pop sensibility about the, the melodies of their music. Oh yeah, for sure. I think it's interesting that while they're in Vancouver recording Dr. Feelgood, in the mm-hmm. studio right next door, Aerosmith is recording Pump. It's and amazing. We'll, we'll have some crossover here in a minute when we dive into the tracks in the album. Dr. Feelgood was released on September 1st, 1989. Yeah. Their only album to reach number one. Are we ready to dive in? Are you ready to dive in? I am ready to dive in. Let's dive into the tracks on Dr. Feelgood. The first track on the album is called TNT. Otherwise known as Terror in Tinseltown. It's not really a song, but it's the intro to Dr. Feelgood. And what a perfect intro for the first album that they've done in sobriety. About a 17-year-old who's OD'd on drugs. It's really interesting. I I think it sets a serious tone for the album. This is not screw around party rock. This is is serious stuff, right? And then you have this hard break that sounds like a crash. Reminds me a little bit of maybe a head-on collision from a few years before. Ooh, didn't even think of that. Good call. One little tidbit on this I I found that I thought was interesting. Mm -hmm. This is the exact same sample used by the band Queensryche for their song, Eyes of a Stranger. If you listen to Eyes of the Stranger, it's the same deal. Dr. Davis, telephone please, Dr. Davis. So two rock albums using the same sample. Kind of interesting. Wow, that's crazy. All right. So that brings us to the title track. First real song in the album, Dr. Feelgood. I love the drums in this song. I love it all. I love it all. But Nicky talked about how he would get together with Tommy whenever he was writing a song. And Tommy had this amazing ability to find the heartbeat of the song. Like he just knew the rhythms. He he's an expert drummer who could find the way to bring the words that Nikki had written to life with the beat. Yeah. I'd almost say that this is like a drum riff. It's just really good. 
really these guys are at the top of their game with this song this song was released august 28th 1989 reached number six on the hot 100 peaked at number six on october 28th 1989 and clearly this song is about an la drug dealer that nikki six knew this song grabs you from the first moment you know you talked about how you felt about want to be starting something and this one just that it grabs you instantly and you know that what you're listening to is going to be a song that's going to be timeless it is still good it's still totally listenable right now it's it's awesome i love it it's a scarface type of story with this guy rat tail jimmy or Jigsaw Jimmy. I, I love the part where he's talking about he sells powdered goods and packages candy cane, and he's going to be your Frankenstein. I mean, it just it's just really great. Really, really top of their game. Great song. I think the guitar solo in this song is killer. I mean, Mick is just shredding. Oh, yeah. It's amazing. It's amazing. And it's interesting that, you know, they're getting off drugs and Mick has always always been like the quiet member of the band and he was I mean more than anything was a drinker but he was going through something that none of the band knew about did you know this yeah the the bone diagnosis yeah basically it fuses your spine together where you can't turn your head and yeah like curves you down yeah right and it's intensely painful and so he at some point had gotten significantly addicted to the painkillers that he had had and it was the guy who was those guys who were so drug addled during the girls 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 tour that had to come to him and go hey man we got to get you cleaned up like he was ready to die he had wasted away to nothing just hold up and he was about to die yeah before they saved him he's still around yep looking still like the crypt keeper crypt keeper yeah. from the tales of the crypt that's exactly what i was <laughs> <laughs> So Nikki wrote all the lyrics. Mick is the one who came up with the the guitar riff. Yeah, chords for the chorus, and Nikki laid the lyrics and melody over the top of that. This was ranked in 2009 as the 15th greatest hard rock song of all time by VH1. Okay, so that brings us to the second title on the album, a song called Slice of Your Pie. Okay, hold on. These guys are doing a bluesy thing. Wait a minute. My hard rock band is doing blues. What? What? What's going on here? <laughs> oh! Oh, there they are. There's the band that I know and love. Yeah, exactly. Oh, man. I love this song. I love it. So, every one of these songs, as I was listening to the album, I thought every single one of them, rock ballad or skipper, Heavy metal or songs written for strippers. There we go. Okay, that's great, man. And so, Doctor Feelgood is a is obviously a rocker. I mean, it's a hard rocker for sure. Tattoo crawling down her leg, so sexy, so young. Ever get caught? They'll arrest me. Okay, so this song is Slice of Your Pie. At the very beginning, the voice you hear in the background is Steven Tyler. Wow, I did not know that. Yes. Nice, and I. We didn't talk about this before, but you were a crew guy. Like you, you love Motley Crue growing up. Definitely, definitely. It was, I heard their songs, but I was never, I didn't buy the albums. I was never into their stuff. So when I heard this Slice of Your Pie, this is the first time I had heard the song was in preparation for the show. And I, I, my mind was blown. It's great, so man. 
this has given me dynamics that I didn't know that Motley Crue had had. Them coming in with this kind of acoustic, bluesy intro before they get back into the Motley style is amazing. But then when you get about two minutes and 45 seconds into the song, you have a breakdown that occurs. start to hear that kind of uh, Tyler was doing at the beginning and it goes into this part and if you listen now now I want you to listen to a song called Because by the Beatles Wait for the voices to come in. You can come in here in just a second. So that's ah, that's awesome. That's I mean, incredible. That, and that blows my mind because I did not know that. Slice of your pie steals from Abbey Road. It's it's not the exact same, but the style is obviously there, and especially when you come in with that voice. Oh man. They do it. They do a great job with it. Great, great song. It is a great song. It's blues, and then it's that sleazy Motley Rock. During this song, they say, got something sticky sweet for you. Then later, we have a song called Sticky Sweet. And so I'm wondering, did that lyric come from that song, or did that song come from that lyric? Yeah, what do you think they're talking about that's sticky sweet? I'm not exactly sure. Like Lifesavers or something? Yeah. Syrup? (laughs) (laughs) After Slice of Your Pie, the next song on the album is called Rattlesnake Shake. I'm going to go ahead and say that this is a stripper song. (laughs) (laughs) And you would be right. It's interesting because obviously we listen to both of these albums several times before we do these podcasts. And I can remember the first time I listened to Dr. Feelgood, I followed it up immediately with Skid Row. And I went, man, they seem to be saying the same. (laughs) Wait a minute. They both have the same song title. What's going on with that? They both have a song on the albums that we're comparing called Rattlesnake Shake. And they're not the same song. It's no. not as though, you know, Skid Row is not covering Motley Crue here. I just, I don't, you know, you can guess as to what a rattlesnake shake is, but the mental picture that I came up with is Doc McGee is in a strip club with both the guys from Skid Row and the guys from Motley Crue, and the girl is up there shaking her booty, and Doc McGee says, this is a rattlesnake shake. Hey, some, <laughs> one of you guys should write a song about that. <laughs> tell me you cannot imagine the stripper walking onto the stage for that first bit of guitar that's playing (laughs) absolutely it's a stripper song it's a hundred percent stripper song well let's not let's not jump ahead here let's take a look at the lyrics just (laughs) see what they might be talking about let's see She's a sex machine. She keeps her engine hot, her motor clean. Way she moves across the floor, the way she shakes her hips and licks her lips. Come on there, girl. Won't you shake that thing? Could be. 
Yeah, I think I think so. Could be a stripper song. Slides through the night with a viper smile. <laughs> oh my gosh, she's got sassy class. We, <laughs> I've said it before. I'll say it again. If we've learned anything from rock of the '80s, if you want to have a hit, write a song for strippers. Absolutely, absolutely. Black and blue. Pour some sugar on me. Rattlesnake shake. Okay, so this song has some horns in it, which is not typical Motley Crue style. Not at all. I think this is the influence of Aerosmith. Okay. Aerosmith's right next door. They're 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 idols, and Aerosmith is not afraid to put some some horns in their music. I think this is the Aerosmith influence. I like this song. I think it's a fun song. I know all the words. The part that really kind of bugs me is the chorus. Everything but the yes. snake shake to do to do. It's just got yeah. kind of a little leave it to beaver feel. It's a little corny. It's a little corny. beaver. <laughs> <laughs> leave it to beaver. You can't, you can't say that on this podcast. Oh, you know, that the Fleet, Fleetwood Mac also had a song called rattlesnake shake. I get I, Wow. Yeah, it's crazy. Wow. Hey, I do want to mention, okay, so the the one of the opening lyrics is she keeps her engine hot, her motor clean. Mm-hmm. That has to be a reference to You Shook Me All Night Long by ACDC. Oh, of course it is. Yeah. Of course it is. Yeah, no question. Yeah. And I have to think that the Beatles influence that we just heard also had something to do with Aerosmith because Aerosmith did a cover of Come Together, which was a Beatles song. I like the breakdown in the middle of the song. So they break it down into this awesome little bit where you've got just the bass and the drums going. And I guess Nikki has finally learned to play the bass at this point because it sounds really good. Then you get Mick coming in with the guitar and climbing up the ladder of the guitar with his speed metal awesomeness i love it catchy tune good song definitely not a skipper now we're moving on to one of the great songs on the entire album this song is called kickstart my heart like you're in a car but it's guitar and then boom if you are not banging your head right now you should not be listening to this podcast So good, so good, so much of a build and a pump and a get you out of your seat and start rocking your freaking balls off. <laughs> too good. It's too good. Oh, it's great, man. It's it's great. So much fun and bang your head and pump your fist. Love it. This is Motley Crue at their best. Nikki wrote this song and brought it to rehearsal, but he thought it was a throwaway. In his words, he says it's something that belonged on Too Fast for Love. One of his former managers actually encouraged him to say, look, dude, this is pretty good. You need to share this with the rest of the band. Mm. And he just kind of did and didn't really expect a lot of it. And it turned out to be one of their biggest hits. Oh, yeah. Too, too, too good to have left off. That was, I'm so glad that that happened. So this song is called Kickstart My Heart. I told you the story. This yeah. is about him being dead and them bringing him back to life. Yeah, Kickstart yeah. my heart. The two adrenaline shots to the heart 
are what kickstarted his heart. This was the second single released November 20th, 1989. Yeah. Yeah. This is with them being in sobriety. This is kind of the message that they're given out, which is we're finding our high from something other than drugs now, which is why you see them skydiving and racing cars and going back to the place where they first became a hit, the Whiskey A Go-Go, driven by Mr. Sam Kinison himself. That's exactly right. Before we talk about the video, which I think we need to talk about the video, but I've got a quick funny story about this song. On January 7th, 2019, a driver in Manitoba, Canada. Okay, I've got a good friend, Cameron Eckert. Shout out to my good Canadian friend in Vancouver. But the driver was in Manitoba, Canada, was pulled over for doing 90 miles an hour, uh-huh. which is 145 kilometers per hour. His excuse was he was listening to Kickstart My Heart. <laughs> the officer didn't go for it oh. because he happened to be listening to the same radio station. Oh. <laughs> Still makes for a funny story. That's good. Okay, so let's talk about the video. The video was shot at the Whiskey A Go Go on October 5th, 1989, during Motley Crue's warm up show before the Dr. Feelgood tour. So, like you said, Sam Kennison is driving the Dr. Feelgood mobile. Uh-huh. They pull back up to the place where they got their start, the Whiskey A Go-Go. And now, of course, they're huge stars. So you were telling me about this breakdown in the middle of the song. What happened? Okay, so I love the breakdown in the middle of the song. And particularly, let's talk about that part in the video as well. So it's this um, nostalgic look at their previous accomplishments, right? And in the video, you see clips from Girls, 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 Livewire, Looks That Kill, Smoking in the Boys' Room, Wild Side, too Young to Fall in Love, and Home Sweet Home, different videos. And it kind of walks you through their career as it builds, and it ramps right back up into the kick-butt, fast-paced, kickstart my heart, and it blows me away. This is the song they opened the Dr. Feelgood tour with. Perfect. I mean, is there a better kickoff to a rock concert than this song? No. This is the absolute perfect choice to start off the set for Dr. Feelgood. Okay, I got a quick story. The first time I heard Dr. Feelgood was about a week and a half or two weeks before the release of the album. Somehow the radio station in Tulsa, Oklahoma got a hold of a copy of the album and played it through its entirety. And one guy on my baseball team had the forethought to press record on his little blank tape that he had in his stereo system and made copies and distributed it to everybody on the baseball team. Uh huh. So we were blowing out Kickstart My Heart like two weeks before the album was released. Nice. So that, I feel like for some reason I have a connection with this song because I learned it before the average person could get their hands on it right and the fact that it was going to be a humongous hit was undeniable oh yeah oh yeah that's awesome great song great song that brings us to the next song that song is called without you so this one obviously is the rock ballad 
this is this is back when Tommy was still married to Heather Locklear, and Nikki and Mick wrote this song together as Tommy's perspective of Heather Locklear because she was she was a she had come from a conservative family. We're talking about like head of the cheerleading squad, totally different style than Motley Crue and the girls that they were accustomed to. But she, at least in the early part of their relationship, kept Tommy grounded and he was definitely very in love with her. And Nikki picked up on that and said, I just saw what he what, what she was for him and thought I can write a song. And he said, I got a little mushy on this one. It is a love song, but that's okay, because it was from Tommy's perspective about what Heather was doing for him. This song has got a, a mix playing that steel guitar, and you've got some strings. It's a great song. It's not Home Sweet Home great, but it's a good rock ballad. I, I love the song. Um, the video, it's, the video's got some like computer animation stuff at the beginning that was pretty cutting edge for 1980. Eight or whenever it was. Yeah, I mean the video is a little corny. It's got. Well, you don't uh, like the Panther. I. <laughs> I always like Panthers in videos. <laughs> but uh, you've got yeah, you're right. I mean you got that heart with the swords, and but you've got these Egyptian statues, and you even have like Vince as like Samson from the Old Testament, right? <laughs> Puts his hands up, pushes over two pillars for no apparent reason. Lots of smoke blowing. They wisely got a lady to direct this video. This one was <laughs> by Mary Lambert, who also did the visuals for Don't Go Away Mad, Just Go Away. So we'll talk about that one here in a minute. Yeah, cool. I, I do. I, I think this song's great. This is, um, yeah, Slow Dance Heaven in 1990. <laughs> This reached number eight on the Hot 100. Nice. Um, by the way, this is the third single released March 12th, 1990. Reached number eight. Top 10 hit. It's a great song. I love it. It's, it's a great it's song. It's a rock ballad that, that goes well with the other rock ballads of the late 80s. It, de- it definitely does. It definitely does. Ready? All right. Stop your tape. Kick it out. Flip it over. Side two. Starting off with same old situation. Once again, banging my head, and I'm thinking this is where the stripper walks onto stage. The stripper is leaving you to go be with another stripper. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. Okay. Let's talk about that for a second. I think that is hilarious. And 90% of people, 99% of people who listen to this song have no idea what this song is about. Yeah. It's about chicks leaving you for other chicks. Yes. Nikki said, which is worse than a chick leaving you for a guy, because there's nothing you can do about a chick leaving you for another chick. <laughs> <laughs> I, I think it's funny that they, they think that this is like just the same old situation. Like this happens all the time, you know? Here we go again. <laughs> <laughs> uh, if it's happened once, it's a th- happened a thousand times to me. But. So they play they play this song for the guys at Electra Records, and they're like, oh, this is perfect for a single. And they look at each other, and they're like, okay, we'll tell them what it's about later, okay? <laughs> <laughs> I love that, man. 
So this song is pure, full throttle, motley fun, right? You've got, in the video, you've got the, they have this little camera and a gerbil ball and they just throw it out there in the crowd and they pass it around and you have this crazy footage. Mm. But this, the, the video demonstrates Tommy's overhead drum kit that's super cool. Right. Yes. He just this came for, that came from a dream he had. He he you know obviously was probably coked out of his mind and <laughs> fell asleep and had a dream about being inside of a cage that was spinning around with his drum set in it over the crowd and he woke up, told Nikki about it and said, "I think I might be I might try to make that really happen." And by golly, he did. Interestingly, at the beginning of this video, you have a little a scroll yeah. And it says, between August 7th of 89 and August 6th of 1990, almost exactly one year, Motley played in front of 2 million fans in 14 countries. And it's great. It's got a helicopter landing. And it, this really just shows the mentality because both Tommy and Vince walk by and they make this face at the camera like any of us would as we were walking by a camera. And then you see... Mick and Nikki walking up and they just look like they're doing nothing. But then Nikki makes this awesome, like he, it's like he knows where the frame of the camera is and he pulls his head to one side and pulls his chewing gum out to the other. And you're like, wow, he just turned that into from goofy into cool. So this is the video is like a live type of thing. And you get to see him on stage doing live thing. And uh, the, I always remember, I don't know why this sticks with me. But the background singers, the girls, the you know, the good-looking girls are the background singers. They were called the Nasty Habits. Well, <clears throat> I don't know what the rule was on this particular set, but the Girls, Girls, Girls tour was the first one that they decided to have backup singers at all. Yeah. And yeah. the rule was no sleeping with the backup singers. Do you know who broke the rule? Mick. Mick. That's right. <laughs> that's awesome. So same old situations, the fifth single released july 30th 1990 peaked at number 78 on the billboard hot 100 this song is better than number 78 on the hot 100 i'm sorry oh absolutely fantastic song yep love it all right ready to move on yes all right the next song after same old situation is a song called sticky sweet This introduction is like a perfect mix of Black Dog by Led Zeppelin and Back in Black by ACDC. It's just that dump break, dump break, and it's it's awesome. I love it. Kicks butt, and once again, stripper song. Stripper song. Yep. Okay, so this is not my favorite song on the album. I, I'd call this one of the weaker tracks. It's still fun and, and all that. The interesting thing to me is singing in the background on this song, you have Steven Tyler, you have Jack Blades from Night Ranger and Damn Yankees. He also have, sang backups on uh, Same Old Situation. Oh, cool. Jack Blades did, yeah. Okay, and you also have Brian Adams. What? Summer of 69, Brian Adams singing backup. What? Yeah. Motley Crue. Let Brian Adams come in and sing backup. Yeah. He lived, he was living in Vancouver at the time. And they're like, hey, come on down. <laughs> wow. That's pretty cool. I mean, you that got Steven crazy. Tyler, Jack Blades, Brian Adams, and Vince Neil all singing on the same track. That's pretty, that's pretty cool. I dig it. 
the the lyric where he, where Vince says, "Oh, good God, there's a fire in my pants." <laughs> there's a fire <laughs> in my pants. <laughs> <laughs> Moving on to another stripper song. <laughs> this song is called She Goes Down. You mean like she's up on a ladder and uh, <laughs> yeah. she's on the stairs? She's on an escalator. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. This song starts off with that big, humongous zipper sound effect. The subtlety and restraint that they've shown on this song is really <laughs> impressive. <laughs> Yeah, she goes down all night long. She goes down on all my friends. She goes down. She gets down. heart attack. She goes down, down. down. <laughs> oh my goodness. Okay, little interesting tidbit on this song. I, this song again, a little cornball, little silly, still fun. I mean, yeah. if you, if you don't have songs about sex with Motley Crue, there's something wrong. This is a fun song. <laughs> But singing background on this song is Robin Zander of Cheap Trick. Nice. Yeah, Robin Zander was really close with Nikki Six. He considered Cheap Trick to be one of the best bands ever, and I, I believe they toured together for a little while, too. Yeah, yeah. Nikki's been a big fan of Cheap Trick for a long time. All right. Song after that is a song called Don't Go Away Mad, Just Go Away. Okay, so there are two components to this song for me, right? There's this, the verse that you have at the beginning, and there's not really a chorus right. to this song, right? It's kind of like, hey, Jude, where you've got all this stuff, and then at the end, you've got this, you've got the girl, don't go away mad, just go away, repeating itself over and over again. And so I was listening to this song when I was running today, tonight, just before we started recording, and I had just finished... The Heroin Diaries by Nikki Six. And I remember the line where he said, Girls were his crush, and he fell in love with heroin. And I'm listening to these lyrics, and I have to think that the beginning part of the song is not actually about a girl, it's about him giving up his habit. So it says in here, let's see, we were too young. Okay, too young to fall in love, which is a throwback to one of their old songs when he first started doing drugs. And then he says, that's all right. That's okay. We were walking through some youth, smiling through some pain, which I think has got to be a needle in the arm. That's all right. That's okay. Let's turn the page. My friends called us today down from L.A. They were shooting pool all night, sleeping half the day. They said I could crash if I could find my own way. I told them you were leaving on a bus to go away. I think this is about, he's friends with in LA has gotta be, they're shooting dope, not pool. And they're offering him the opportunity to do dope. And he says, no, I'm not doing that anymore. That train has sailed, that bus has left. I'm not involved in that bad relationship anymore. This I this is I haven't read anything that says this is my own interpretation of the song, but I think this is about giving up his addiction. Interesting. Okay, that's interesting. 
And then the second part of the song where it just keeps repeating, girl, don't go away, mad, just go away. He said he got it from some movie. I think it's in a... Yeah, it's Heartbreak Ridge by the yeah. Clint Eastwood movie. Yeah. yeah, he said he was in the movie, and when they said that line, he's like, wow, that's a great line, and he, and he wrote it down in the movie theater on his hand or something like that. Nice. It's a great... This is a fun song, great feel-good song. The video is a little bit strange. So this is before their big blow-up, which happened just a couple of years after this. I remember watching this video going... So Vince is away, and they're like, hey, we're getting the band back together. Come on back. I think Vince is in New York, and come on back to L.A. And they were shooting pool all night and said I could crash if I could find my way, right? So he comes back, and then as the song ramps up into the repeated line, girl, don't go away, man, just go away. Vince shows up, and hey, we're playing, and we're back together. We're having a great... They they exchange three of the worst, most awkward hugs that you could ever. <laughs> I remember watching this going, they need somebody should have reshot that scene because it just It was probably the best take that they had. <laughs> Mary Lambert was like, Okay, you guys come hug each other like you haven't seen it. And like, hug? We hate him. <laughs> hug? We hate each other. <laughs> We got to listen to the end of the song for sure. Oh, yeah. It's like a totally different song, but it's still, it's, it's, it's wonderful. It's kind of like Rocket Queen. The beginning is one song, and the end it closes with a different song. But I think it. I think this one ramps up. I, I like the the end of it really a whole lot. Okay, last song in the album, song called "Time for Change." So, injured the song. I'm thinking. Okay, we're reaching out for. Home sweet home, right? That's the attempt, yeah. Yeah. And I feel like they fail. <laughs> swing and a miss. <laughs> it is a swing. This is Motley Crue trying to do We Are the World, and it doesn't work. Yeah, I'm with you. I, I, I love every single song on this album so far, and they finish with this one, and I was just like, you shouldn't have tried to do this. Yeah. I mean, it was at least an attempt to do something a little bit different. I mean, it's a, it's almost like a campfire song with a piano. I, I, I don't buy it. I, I'm not into the time for change and all this stuff. I'd rather hear smoke in the boys room, you know, <laughs> can we do something else? Can um, we have another stripper song? please? <laughs> <laughs> We've got rock. <laughs> We've got skippers. We've got rock ballads and songs for strippers. This one is the skipper on the album for me. I, I loved every other song up until this one. And I would just flip the tape over, hit rewind to the back, back of the beginning of Dr. Feel Good and, and go from there. I would not yeah. listen. I'm with you. This is a skipper. This I do remember this getting airplay on my local radio station, which they used to do, right? They would play through the hits, and once they were done with all the hits, they would find other songs to play. And I remember this song actually making the top 10 at 10 or whatever on my local radio station. But even then, I was like, eh, eh, no. So 
that's it. That's the album. And then the album is released and it becomes their first and only number one hit. The reviews of Dr. Feelgood were almost universally positive. I like this one. It says, uh, very entertaining, bringing the listeners in a world of an everlasting party where they savored the joys of trashy, unapologetic, decadent fun. It's interesting, you know, Bob Rock obviously was more meticulous about the way that this album was produced, but he kept the edge that Motley Crue had. He was he did it. He walked that thin line of overproduced and you know unlistenable. I guess I don't know. He, the, he walked it very well, where he he maintained the strong hard rock heavy metal sound that they had, while also making it very radio friendly. Yeah, this I mean, this is the most radio friendly album that Molly Crew has ever done. Yeah. Doctor Feel Good and Kickstart My Heart were both named nominated for Grammy Awards for Best Hard Rock Performance in nineteen ninety and in nineteen ninety one. Lost to Living Color. I feel like Doctor Feel Good and Kickstart My Heart should have won, but I stinking love Cult of Personality by Living Color. They did win Best Hard Rock Heavy Metal Album of the Year at the American Music Awards in January of 91 for the album. Yeah, and they deserved it. Great album, tons of great songs, tons of fun. I love it. So that wraps up Dr. Feel Good. What an incredible album. Please don't forget to join us next week when we look at Skid Row's debut album, Skid Row. I am so looking forward to getting into Skid Row's first album. It's beautiful. I mean, talk about a guy who has a voice that was made for rock and roll and a face and a body and a personality. Ooh, wait a minute. (laughs) Okay, guess we'll have to talk about that next week. Don't forget to join us. Don't forget to subscribe so that you don't miss the episode. Jason, it's been awesome, man. D, I can't wait to see you next week. Skid Row, finish it up, the matchup. Cool.